kind of found time to be here again uh, to see some uh, familiar faces and uh, to meet others so I put my card as, uh, as a joy. I get a, a number of many for the best of reasons uh, today. Uh, I understand uh, family already uh, marking uh, uh, observing the baptism of family members. That's uh, what a good reason <laughs> to be away. Would you take your Bibles, please? We're going to turn to uh, Revelation 3 as it uh, appears on the notice board. You will probably know that uh, Revelation, in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, we have seven letters. Letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. And uh, we're going to be this evening considering the letter to the church at Philadelphia. And it's headed in, uh, not the Bible I have with me, but uh, uh, in my Bible back at home. And it may be as headed in your Bible, the faithful church. Now Helen's own uh, scripture passages are not inspired. Uh, but I do think the, uh, the headings over the, uh, the letters to the seven churches are uh, particularly helpful. So we have the letter to the church at Ephesus, the loveless church, to Smyrna, the persecuted church, Pergamos, the, com the compromising church, Thyatira, the corrupt church, Sardis, the dead church, Philadelphia, the faithful church. And Laodicea, the lukewarm church. And with each of these letters, of course, we have at the end this injunction, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So may the Lord help us this evening as we consider together this letter to the church at Philadelphia, which begins at verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and do not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. 
I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. The name for the brethren, as you may know, means love of the brethren, or brotherly love. A heartwarming name indeed, and one that's uh, matched by this letter. It's surely the most upbeat, the most encouraging of all the seven letters written to these churches. And that despite the fact that they were not very strong. Maybe they were not maybe intelligent. And also despite the fact that they had experienced some pretty sharp opposition. Although it's not explicitly stated, there's good reason I suggest that they were living out, as a church, they were living out the name of brotherly love, something that the Lord has commanded us to do, love one another as I have loved you. Which according to 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 9, we are taught by God to love one another. Psalm 133 will teach us, will it not, that when brothers are dwelling together in unity, when they love one another, united together, there the Lord commands the blessing, life forevermore. And so the prayer to be the blessed condition of this church at Philadelphia when he visits this church, as he says it, while the Lord was willing to entrust to them an open door. Would he have entrusted an open door to a church that was bickering and backbiting? To a church that is experiencing discord and division? But he was. He was in saying to them, sitting before them, an open door. And so this week's lesson wants to ordinate us three features or characteristics of this assembly, three promises that the Lord makes to this assembly, one command that he gives them, and one final postscript. Three features, three promises, one command and one postscript. Almost but not quite entirely in that order, as we shall see. But first, we've already made mention of an open door that no one can shut. What is this open door that's being referred to? Well, again, we're not explicitly told 
Herod was Russia. What it is. Now it's a phrase that recurs a number of times in the, in the New Testament. And I'll, I'll just read these four occurrences that we find. And uh, uh, you try and, uh, as you read them, see if you can work out the connection between each of them. I, Acts 14 and verse 27. And when they had come and gathered together, gathered the church together, they, that's uh, Paul and Barnabas, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 8. I will tarry, writes Paul, in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord. And Titus 4 verse 3. Men are praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. Well, in those instances, they relate, do they not, to an opportunity for gospel ministry. And therefore, it's reasonable to think that this is its meaning in the letter here. That the Lord is setting before this church an opportunity for ministry, for reaching out with the gospel, an opportunity for evangelism, which if they will just take with the hands of faith, regardless of how weak and how inadequate they may feel, they will discover it to be a doorway of blessing and fruitfulness. With that in mind, let us notice how First, the Lord Jesus introduces himself. For it was a letter from him. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens, I know your works. He is holy, the risen Christ, holy and true. He is holy in all his ways, in all his words, in all his actions, in all his purposes. Holiness is a particular attribute of deity. We think of the words we find in Peter's first letter, the quotation I believe from the Old Testament, Be holy, says the Lord. For I am holy. And he's also true. Now apparently there are two words to true in Greek. The one is true in opposition to what is false. Diara. The other is true in opposition to what is fake. Or sham. And it is this latter word that is used here in verse 7. In other words, the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the true God. He is real. He is genuine. As opposed to all the false gods of Greek mythology and culture. And indeed, in contrast to all other gods, he is the only living and true God. 
in John 5, 5 to that end, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Then he continues with the injunction, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Cleave and cling to Christ, the true one. He is indeed the truth. Well, what's the connection between the way the Lord Jesus introduces himself and what follows in terms of this open door of opportunity? Could it not be that as his ambassadors walk through this door of opportunity, it is essential that they also manifest his holiness and his truth as his, rep as his representatives? We are told to be holy and real and genuine in all our ways, not to be sullen and hypocrites. Not only is he holy and true, but he is also omnipotent. He has all power and authority. He holds the key of David. He opens, no one shuts. He shuts, no one opens. Earlier in, in this book, the, the risen Christ has revealed himself to John as having the keys of death and of Hades. Chapter 1 and verse 17 and 18. Now the emphasis would be, it would be he holds the key of David that opens the door to life. And there is an Old Testament reference here to an official uh, named Eliakim who's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 22. He, he, there in Isaiah, he is appointed by God and entrusted with the authority over the house of David. We read these words in verse 22 of Isaiah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. And in this way, Eliakim pictures our Lord Jesus. And I think we can see it's confirmed when we note that he has both the keys of life and death. We don't get to get to find keys when you open the front door. Where are your keys? They're in your hand. And they are the keys of life and death and indeed everything to be found. They are in the hand of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think I must say for the last time or the time before that I was with you we considered the uh, some of the verses some of the wonderful verses at the end of John chapter 3 John 3 verse 35 that Father loves the Son and 
masculine bad things into his hand. He has anxiety over love and death and everything and the authority in heaven and upon earth has been given to him. Verse 18, so like that, we find that the Lord has heard, the Lord is true, then the Lord is omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's also omniscient, all-knowing. He knows all about us. So he says, I say to every one believer, through and through, and I also know all that they have gone through. Their weaknesses, the trials and oppositions that they faced, their perseverance and their faithfulness. He knew everything about them. He knew everything about all of these seven churches, every single letter. This is his words. I know your works. We cannot hide anything from him. Somebody said something yesterday. Uh, I was at a meeting and uh, just in conversation this was, and you know, the reference was made to Genesis, uh, Genesis 6, where the Lord said, uh, I think in some verses, I know uh, the imaginations of the heart. <laughs> not just, not just the, the, the mind and, and the words, but the imaginations. Nothing, nothing escapes his notice. Everything is naked and laid bare before him to whom we must give account. Everything. He knows all. So we come to these three features, these three characteristics, and we touch on the first, uh, namely that uh, regardless of what they might think about themselves, the Lord was placing before them a great opportunity for ministry and service, which if they would just seize it by faith, they would discover that none would be able to prevent the outworking of God's good will and purposes for them and the outpouring of his blessing upon them. Job 47, I know, says Job, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Secondly, they had a little strength. Now, note that it's not you have little strength, but you have a little strength. There was some strength there. There was a little. The Bible reminds us of, of Scripture. Uh, other Scripture in connection with human weakness. Think of 1 Corinthians 1.27. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9. The words of the Lord Jesus. My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And we can consider in this connection also just for a moment the Sermon on the Mount. What was its purpose? What was its aim? 
Was it not, was it not to lay a foundation in our lives that would enable us to withstand whatever, whatever life might throw at us in terms of storm or trouble? The Lord Jesus says at the end, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain descended, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. And what is the fundamental layer of that foundation? How does it begin with how we should begin. Chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The fundamental layer. It's a profound sense of personal weakness, of incapacity, of inability, a poverty of spirit, an inadequacy, a helplessness, a recognition of need to which our Lord, he responds, take heart, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Occasionally the brother, he used to remind us, little is much with God, isn't it? Little is much with God, isn't it? Just think of the babe in Bethlehem. Babes able to, to, to use the weakest of vessels for his glory. One traveller writes, it's not a question of great strength, not great ability, but great dependability. Samson had great ability, but poor dependability. And our dependence is upon Almighty God. Thirdly, their faithfulness to the Lord was a hallmark of their church. They had kept his word. They had not denied his name. In other words, they had lived, they had lived up to their profession as followers of Christ, obeying his word and faithfully representing him in their life by word and by deed. And for this they're commended. There's no critical comment in this letter about this church at all. Unlike the other churches, their faithfulness does merit approval. And it wasn't, as we might say, a flash in the pan. Or, they had, to use another metaphor, they had stuck to their guns. They had persevered. You have kept my command to persevere, verse 10. Or the marginal reading, you have kept the word of my patience. They had persevered in the face of opposition. Now we're not told the exact nature of this opposition, but we are told its origin. It's Satan himself, the adversary of God. And we're told its channel. It was from those who called themselves Jews. But they're not shown as well in the New Testament sense. To be a true Jew 
is not meant to be circumcised externally in the flesh, but to be internally in the heart. It would be very wrong to characterize all Jews and all synagogues in this way. But it is nonetheless true that having the genes of Abraham is no guarantee you have the faith of Abraham. Indeed, in the words of the Lord Jesus, it's no guarantee you have Abraham as your father. John 8 says, confronted by Jews whom he acknowledges as Abraham's descendants, but spiritually speaking, he says to them, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. And he was a murderer from the beginning, and that is what they wanted to do to him. See, this is through hearts that characterizes the church. They want the task of opportunity, they have a little strength, and it's my proposition, they are faithful. And he answers this by giving three promises. Verse 9. I will make known your adversaries time and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Not that the Christians would be worshipped, but that God would be worshipped by these once adversaries in the presence of these Christians. And they would acknowledge that they were the Lord's. And so the second time, first of all, the promise of vindication. The Lord would take their side. And he would look after them. And this is a repeated theme in scripture. Psalm 37. Commit your way unto the Lord. Trust also in him. And he will bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light. And your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord. And wait patiently for him. And of course the supreme example of all, Philippians 2, when we read of our Lord Jesus Christ humbling himself and becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and given unto him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And every tongue confess him, Lord of all, to the glory of God the Father. We say in that last hymn, fear him, you saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. Make you his service your delight, your want, your need shall be his care. The Lord promises to come to their defense. So first there was vindication, then secondly he promises deliverance from pending trouble. Now the word that's written here it seems to be more than just a local trial. It quite explicitly says it's a trial that's coming upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. 
an attack who came in by day to Roman persecution. But note, but note that these are not all commentators. Cephas is a reference to the great tribulation that's going to befall the earth in the last days. And promises the Lord, I will keep you from the snare of trouble. Now there are at least two ways of understanding this verse. Some believe that the Lord will keep his people by delivering them out of this hour of trial through the rapture. Others understand it to mean that he will cause them to faithfully persevere through this hour of trial by faith. Is it part of or is it through? Could I dare suggest a third preposition? Could it be a path? I find myself on considering this question of judgment and God pouring out his wrath upon humanity which we believe to be not very far away when we hear of some of the things that are happening in our land and we think especially of what's happening in schools and the seeds of confusion that are being sown amongst, amongst youngsters and we know cause one of these little ones to stumble. There's certainly judgment that's coming. Well, I think, when I think about this, I can't help but thinking of Noah. And asking myself, was he delivered out of the flood? Was he delivered through the flood? Or was he delivered across the flood? when we just think about this phrase those that dwell on the earth notice this phrase has a very specific meaning in the book of Revelation you'll find it occurs nine or ten times and uh, we won't turn to it but uh, in chapter 17 it seems it seems very much to be a, a way of describing those who are lost who are under the wrath of God it doesn't seem to be referring to believers. That phrase that is coming upon the earth is not so much for Christians, but for unbelievers. And in this context, Christians are not being spoken of as those that dwell upon the earth. Well, where do they dwell if they don't dwell upon the earth? Well, we've been raised. Christ. We are seated together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our life is hid with Christ in God. He has delivered us from the wrath to come. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await for the Saviour, for the Lord Jesus Christ. We dwell in heavenly places. Answer the question: Is it out of, or is it through, or is it above? One thing we can all agree on: 
Let's come back to this verse. When I was uh, when I was considered, I come back to one Thessalonians five and verse nine. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, we can all agree that he knows how to keep his own. And it was for this that he prayed in John 17, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. So that's the promise of vindication, there's the promise of deliverance, by one means or another, there is a further promise, but it's simply by just when I interpose that one command that's given. Listen to me clear in verses 10 and 11. Trouble is coming and Christ is coming. And we must be ready. And to that end, the Philippians are given this one command. Hold fast what you have. Don't give it up. A similar word of exhortation is given by the, the writer to the Hebrews. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Keep on to the end. Finish well. Don't lose your crown of victory. Verse 11. Hold fast is a, a frequent word of encouragement that's given to the people of God throughout the scripture. Old and New Testaments. The verse is in Deuteronomy 10 verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and to him you shall hold fast. To him you shall hold fast. Nineteen times I, I think throughout the scripture. Uh, four times in these letters, particularly chapter 2 and verse 25, hold fast what you have till I come. And here in chapter 2 and verse 11, hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. And if you do, if you do, well, the third promise is given. And it's a wonderful promise at that. Verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. I will, I will, I will, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Philadelphia was subject, as we know, only too recently, only too well, from recent years, the last few years, like many places in Turkey, Philadelphia was subject to earthquakes. And often following earthquakes, pillars are the last part 
parts of a building to remain standing. Jesus symbolized strength and stability. And God wants us to remain standing when all around us is shaking and crumbling. Ephesians 6 verse 13 Take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. God's pillars are not made of stone. They describe those who faithfully uphold his name and obey and serve his purpose. A pillar supports the building. The only thing that supports the pillar is the foundation. And as the Brahmins observed, two pillars in the church support the church, while they themselves look to Jesus as their support foundation. Two pillars in the church support the church while they themselves look to the Lord, to the Lord Jesus as their support foundation. It would be no doubt to learn in terms of the meaning of this, this verse, but we can surely say that those who, are, who overcome are given a, a place of permanence and security with God in his home and in his city. Four times mention is made of my God. They are identified with him. They own his name and he owns them. Isn't that lovely? And all that is his is theirs. <coughs> Paul wrote some remarkable things to the church at Corinth. All the things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the things present or the things to come all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Romans 8 32 He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all how shall he not with him freely give us all things and so finally we said there's a postscript and the postscript speaks entirely for itself as with all the letters he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches well may the lord help us to listen and to obey for his name's sake